This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. The theme for International Women's Day 2023, or IWD, is Digit All, Innovation and Technology for Gender Equality. IWD, held on 8th of March, recognises and celebrates the women and girls who champion the advancement of transformative technology and digital education. IWD 2023 will explore the impact of the digital gender gap on widening economic and social inequalities. The event will also spotlight the importance of protecting the rights of women and girls in digital spaces and addressing online gender-based violence. Bringing women and other marginalized groups into technology results in more creative solutions and has greater potential for innovations that meet women's needs and promote gender equality. We'll be talking to Ndaya Belchika, IFAD's lead technical specialist on gender and social inclusion throughout the programme, and she'll be explaining how, against a background of inequality, we can push forward. And as IFAD holds its first in the latest round of replenishment meetings in Rome, we speak with IFAD's Ron Hartman about why we think investing in rural people should be at the top of the agenda. In episode 41, we continue the International Women's Day theme, as we'll also be talking to some pretty special women as well. Coming up, we have an e-commerce professional, Shelley Brurick from Samoa, and telling us all about food sovereignty is Elsie Dubray from the Lakota Nation in North America. And there's more news from Indigenous activist Diana Domico from Colombia. Later on in this episode, we check in for the next instalment of Max Cotton's Voyage of Self-Sufficiency. And we finish off this podcast with the fifth instalment in our Bangladesh Climate Change series. You can listen to the rest of these brilliant reports from Bangladesh in podcasts episodes 36, 38, 39 and 40. Don't forget we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efat.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Happy International Women's Day. Right back at you, Michelle. So what are you going to be doing to celebrate the big day itself? I'll actually be finding an event or a talk to listen to with my daughter. It's so important to start uh, being involved at an early stage. How about you, Brian? I will be buying a lot of mimosa flowers to give to every woman that I know. So, (laughs) and I will do much the same as you. So um, anyway, as mentioned earlier, the theme for International Women's Day is Digit All, Innovation and Technology for Gender Equality. This aligns with the priority theme for the upcoming 67th session of the UN's Commission on the Status of Women. I asked Ndaya Belchika, IFAD's lead on gender and social inclusion, to tell us more. Thank you so much for for the question, Brian. So it is no secret that we are severely off track to reach gender equality by 2030. So um, 
and the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report of 2022 projected that at the current rate of progress, it will take 132 years to reach gender parity globally. So then what does it mean? So we need to take bold actions to close the gender gap and also to accelerate progress. So in this context, and I think for this conversation, a key question is what role can digital technologies play in closing the gender gap? Because we have seen in recent years a rapid um, adoption of digital technologies such as internet, computers, mobile devices, social networking, cloud, and et cetera. And so the key question is, can they contribute to close the gender gap um, and then to continue to promote the better inclusion of women into the economy? So first, a few facts. So over 1.7 billion women in low and middle income countries do not own mobile phone. And here I'm just focusing on mobile phones within the digital technologies. So this statistics underlies the reality that women the world over are 14% less likely to own a mobile phone as compared to men. Also, if women does own a phone, she's far less likely to make a full use of all of the services. A recent analysis of calls shows that in South Asia, for instance, women make four times fewer calls than men. And then if we want to drill further into that data, we see that 55% of female mobile phone owners report that they have never sent an SMS compared to 33% of men. And 81% of female mobile phone owners report that never using the internet on a mobile device compared to 70% of men. So what does it show us? What does it tell us? So these disparities in access and usage of mobile phones between men and men and women are due to a number of factors. One of the reasons is that women experience a lower literacy rate than men, affecting and this affects their use of SMS as well as the internet. Other barriers include poverty time scarcity, as well as reduced mobility, cultural and religious taboos. As a result, women often buy or inherit lowered mobile phones uh, with limited features and services. And when they do have phones, most likely than not, their mobile phones are not internet able, which prevent women from actually accessing a number of services. Now, more specifically, if we focus on the agricultural sector, research has shown that women farmers have limited access to agricultural information, which is a major barrier to the adoption of sustainable agricultural innovations. Traditional in-person agricultural systems have often neglected the role of women in agriculture. So agricultural extension agents are mostly men and they tend to offer advisory services primarily to male farmers, right? So then increasingly, there is a recognition that the inclusion of women or female extension workers is very key to see women adopting innovation in agriculture. A second element 
is that the mobility, the limited mobility of women, coupled with cultural sensitivity about male extension agents providing information to female farmers, had limited the reach of traditional extension to women farmers and limited the potential welfare gains that technology adoptions could offer. And we'll be joining Ndaya later in Podcast 41 to find out some practical examples of how to promote digital technologies for gender equality. But next, we talk to Ron Hartman about what will be motivating donors to help small-scale farmers moving forward. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson with Michelle Tang in our studio in Rome. Now we have more from our ongoing mini-series with the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, which is currently hosted by IFAD. Here we hear from leaders in the donor world about the issues that matter to them. Now, the platform brings together donors that believe the best way to tackle global poverty and hunger is to develop agriculture, reshape food systems, and invest in rural communities. Its network of 40 influential donors includes international development agencies, financial institutions, intergovernmental organizations, and foundations. Today, we're in Rome to speak with Ron Hartman, EFAT's Director of Global Engagement, Partnerships, and Resource Mobilization. Ron is also EFAT's board member at the Global Donor Platform. Ron, thank you so much for being with us today on this podcast. What are the issues that currently keep you up at night? Thanks very much, Michelle. Very pleased to be with you today to share some of my thoughts on the global issues that are impacting all of us at the moment. And I'm, of course, uh, a keen member of the platform itself, so I'm always looking for ways to, to discuss how the platform can contribute to furthering the, the global agenda around food security. Having spent the last sort of 25 years working in some of the world's most remote and, and most marginal places with some of the world's poorest rural people, the thing that, that keeps me awake is behind these large aggregate numbers of, of people facing food insecurity, there's a human story. Every one of the, the seven to 800 million people facing food insecurity is a member of a family, is a person with the same hopes and dreams that, that we have. Another dimension beyond this is just the, the combination of different crises that we're facing at the moment and, and how unprecedented they all are. And in the current uh, political environment where multilateralism is challenged, it's a real concern about how the global community can come together to jointly resolve issues that are affecting us all. That's the main concern that I have as a father of, of relatively young children. Indeed, those are very, very complex issues, and um, definitely uh, the numbers are staggering. Now, 2023 is the year of EFAT's 13th replenishment, which is its funding cycle. Why this is a significant moment for the organization and the work that it does uh, for the most vulnerable? The replenishment process is this really interesting process that happens over a 12-month period. And as a member-based organization, what, what this actually entails is, is EFAD engaging really closely with its membership to do three things. Firstly, to review the fund's results. So there's an accountability aspect. The second dimension of the, the replenishment, it's a strategic dialogue around what should be the future medium-term objectives for the fund. The third element of the replenishment, and this is probably the element that people most think of the replenishment as a, a, an observer, and that's around resource mobilization. We're very proud of the fact that we have 
the largest number of contributors to our replenishment than any other fund or, or MDB. We have over 100 countries, both developed and developing, contribute resources to the fund. For me personally, that's a really significant show of support and ownership of, of EFAD, the work that it does, and its mandate. Why is it this is a significant replenishment for the funds? Considering the global context where you've got increasing conflict, climate fragility, economic and fiscal pressures, and an energy crisis, which is all combining into providing an increasing hardship for people globally, um, the replenishment comes at a really critical time. And it mirrors somewhat the origins of EFAD. EFAD was born out of the food and energy crisis of the early 1970s. So as an organization that's purpose-built to respond to these kind of crises this year is a very important global moment for our member states to come together to provide increased resources to respond to increased demand, particularly from our developing member states. Now, for our listeners who may be facing increasing heating bills or higher food prices, why should they pay attention to the replenishment efforts of EFAT or whether the donor community is actually coordinating with each other? This is, uh, I think, a, a key political challenge for many of our member states. Overseas Development Assistance, ODA, uh, has tended to be quite a hot political issue in many of our key traditional donor member countries. Many taxpayers in countries are asking, why should we invest in ODA when we have challenges at home? What we see with increasing fragility, increasing food insecurity, is that there's increasing instability. There's increasing marginalization of people. And this creates all kinds of issues that affect both developing and developed, such as migration, the increasing conflict around resources, assets, and even food. There's some really important lessons that have come from COVID issues of the past few years. And I think what COVID really taught us is that really no one is safe until everybody is safe. And that perspective needs to be applied also in the food security and nutrition space as well. The message to all of our constituents is that overseas development assistance is beneficial in so many different ways, in economic, financial, social, and particularly in terms of stability for the global community. Now, you also mentioned EFAD's comparative advantage, how its mandate has not changed, and it is relevant even more than ever so before. From what I hear, this ultimately enables EFAD uh, to better respond to the changing landscape of food systems with its dynamics and challenges, uh, which are also faced by other donors. Now, together with the multiple global crises that you just mentioned, how does this affect the replenishment process and also the donor community as a whole to be better equipped and to coordinate against these challenges? EFAT as a, an international organization is constantly challenged. We're constantly seeking to evolve and to deliver more effective development results on the ground. Most of the world's poor and hungry people live in rural areas and the majority of them work in agriculture. BFAD is an organization that specializes in targeting the last mile. And over the course of our plus 40 years history, we've helped millions of people and families improve their productivity, incomes, livelihoods, increase their opportunities for employment and build their resilience. And it's particularly that final point on resilience that's critical now. What we do know going forward is that um, shocks such as we're facing at the moment are going to become the new normal. We need to find ways of building resilience because we just can't afford as a global community 
continual sort of humanitarian and emergency support. And we try and catalyze our investments to influence policy to have an even greater impact on promoting sustainable food system transformation. We assemble finance to ensure that every dollar that we receive from our member states translates into more than $8 investment on the ground. So we leverage our capital base to ensure that taxpayers' money goes much further. So every $1 that's provided to EFAD, we're able to directly invest more than $3 in the world's poorest and most marginal rural people. The EFAD 13 replenishment can provide a very needed global investment framework to respond to the current crisis. It's clear that our food systems are under pressure. It's clear that we need to rethink on how we're able to produce more food more sustainably. And it's also clear that we increase investments in improving local food production and productivity. My final question would be, what is your vision for the year ahead? And uh, what are you most looking forward to? Our priority is obviously going to be this year, the EFAD 13 replenishment process. The opportunity for us to check in with our member states, to get their feedback around how we're performing, to be able to communicate the really robust results that we've been able to achieve in the previous replenishments is a great opportunity for reshaping, rekindling the organization and relaunching it to respond to the current crisis. We hear from our member states that they want not handouts, but they want hand-ups. They want to make sure that their food systems are transformed to be more sustainable so that they're not drifting just from crisis to crisis. And that's going to require a mindset shift in how we view um, agriculture and food systems. Another vision and outcome of this year is I'm really excited to continue to engage with the, the global donor platform. It's really important that there is coordination between development partners. And the global donor platform provides a really unique space for like-minded partners to come together. So I've got really big expectations for you, Michelle, the Global Donor Platform team, and particularly for EFAD's continued involvement as a board member. Thank you for that, Ron. And we at the Secretariat really look forward to working together with you and with all of our board members, members, and partners in this coming year. Super. Thanks very much, Michelle, and my best for the new year to all of your listeners. That was Ron Hartman. This month, EFAT held its first replenishment meeting in Rome, and you can follow along through updates on our EFAT website. And to find out more about the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development, go to www.donorplatform.org. Up next, more on International Women's Day. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, and with me today is Brian Thompson. As promised, we are dropping back in for a chat with EFAD's gender lead, Nandaya Belchika, throughout this episode. The theme of International Women's Day really takes the idea that by embracing new technologies and advancing women's skills in science, technology, engineering and mathematics, we can accelerate our progress towards gender equality. Nandaya told me more about how IFAD is doing this through its project portfolio. So access to the internet, digital platforms, computers, as well as mobile phone, and the knowledge of digital and technology 
technical skills is very important um, because it allows women to access information, education, knowledge, markets, have access to financial services, social networks, health resources, as well as economic opportunities. So the digital platforms, as well as mobile phones and digital financial services, provide unique opportunities for women's economic empowerment and can contribute to greater gender equality by providing women the possibility to earn additional income, increase their employment, as well as increase their knowledge um, in general. That also provides them to increase their representation in the society, give them better standing, and also build their own confidence. This in particular has been critical in the case or during the COVID-19 pandemic, where internet access provided access to critical health information, enable loved ones to remain connected, and ensure Uh, many people to continue to have a sustained livelihood. So as such, digital technology can and should be harnessed for accelerating the progress towards gender equality. So how does EFAD uses that in its own portfolio? So EFAD promotes solutions, improving the access to information, access to services, promote financial inclusion through ICT, leveraging its competitive advantage, focusing on rural women, promoting rural youth employment, as well as focusing on the access of nutritious food for all. So EFAD is using different technological or digital component, uh, for instance, in the use of climate smart digital services, digital finance, digital smart tech for climate resilience, as well as GIS and remote sensing. More specifically, in Egypt, in the context of a project called Prime, technology like WhatsApp or Telegrams are used to exchange practices between women's associations or marketing information or to exchange knowledge on land leases that are available. In Kyrgyzstan, GIS is used to help rural communities manage their pastures more sustainably and adapt to the effects of climate change. Another project in Egypt called START used digital intervention to assist production, marketing, youth employment, leading to the innovation, efficiency, and scaling up of successful experience. In Cambodia, the use of an app called Chamka is used to scale up to the scale up of governmental e-extension services. This enables farmers to have access to agricultural information as well as input. The virtual platform provides the opportunity to participate in one-on-one sessions with some specific technical experts and allows the producers to also link up with buyers making contracts and digital payments. In Guatemala, we saw that They use innovation technologies in the context of COVID-19 to continue promote work um, during that pandemic. Women were able to continue to work. Then thanks to a loan from um, local rural savings bank, IFAD's rural poor stimulus facility, Joanna, 
uh, and EFAT beneficiaries started our own business at home during the COVID-19 pandemic. Digital services meant for Joanna that she was able to manage her finances from home. The project, so the example of Johanna is just one example, but the project in Guatemala has helped more than 1,500 rural women to actually access digital banking services and recover from the pandemic. Thanks to Ndaya, and we'll be talking more about overcoming the barriers to rural development for women later in Podcast 41. In Podcast 38, we looked at biodiversity and farming. In Podcast 39, we heard from IFAD's president, Alvaro Lario. And in Podcast 40, but myself and Michelle look much younger, we focused on the Indigenous Peoples Forum. And next month, we'll be looking at innovation in agriculture. Coming up now, we're hearing from a female Indigenous activist in Colombia. We're back. This is Farms Food Future, and I'm Brian Thompson, here with Michelle Tang. Next, we have Diana Doquero Domico from Colombia. She tells us about the role of Indigenous communities, and especially Indigenous youth and women, in the fight for a more sustainable future for everyone. Dakera is a young indigenous woman of the Ebera Eabida people from Canavarel Alto San Jorge, which is near Cordoba in Colombia. She's passionate about the defense of indigenous youth and women, and she's worked at local, regional, and the international level. Dakera was the first young woman to become national indigenous coordinator of the Colombian National Indigenous Organization. And she's been nominated as a young Indigenous activist for Indigenous rights by the UN. She's currently part of the Latin American and Caribbean Youth Network and Focal Point in the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus in the UN South Region. Tell me a bit about your community and your upbringing. Well, my community is in Córdoba, in Colombia, the Embera community. I was born in Cañaveral or Chansodó, as we say in Embera. That's where I grew up, where I was born. I grew up a bit in the middle of the conflict, in the middle of the armed conflict, because my territory is one of the two red zones here in Colombia. My community has been displaced several times. And in the middle of all that, to try to grow all together with a community and also to be able to learn to speak Spanish, it was a bit difficult to study. My mother always said and pushed that I had to study. I mean, you have to learn Spanish to be able to finish high school. There, you normally study up to third grade within the community, but I did study up to third grade, so to speak, in primary school. And in secondary school, I had to go to the nearest town, which was a few hours away. So, well, I walked and arrived, just like that. Just in my community, there are approximately 200 of us. In general, in the resguardo, as we call it, there are approximately 800 of us. That's how I was brought up. Territory and costumes, my identity, my grandfathers and grandmothers, and everyone else. Plants, medicine, a bit of everything. What are some of the most pressing issues in your community? There are several. The first, the armed conflict issue. 
I think that's number one. Secondly, the lack of education. This means that uh, children should have the opportunity to study. In my community, the children can hardly study because they don't understand Spanish well. No matter how much you take them to school, it is very difficult because the children don't understand. The third thing I would say, job opportunities. For example, it is difficult because one of the realities is that there is no way to get a job. It is very difficult, and that goes in hand in hand with a conflict. Not only displacement, but also recruitment. But the most urgent thing, without a doubt, is that we need some guarantees here. My community was recently displaced because of the armed conflict. So we need to be aware all the time. What role do young people have in addressing these issues? One of the things for us, I would say, is to be resilient to the problem, to resist the problem, right? I can't solve the conflict on my own, you know, because the conflict is not just with myself. So it's not within our communities. Secondly, I think that we are, as young people, are trying to look for solutions, not to join the conflict. Try to leave your community to study. Maybe that could be seen as a solution, I don't know. But we also try to study, you know, because it's not just, well, you have your school and you go to study. Another way I feel is to educate the children. The truth is that we are the example of those who come after us. I have a daughter, a young daughter. So your leadership contributes, that you can support the process with the elders, with the grandparents, that you can always, from your knowledge, be it academic, from your leadership, contribute to your community so that it can be sustained. How can young people learn from older generations in terms of activism, and how can older generations help younger people? So, there are young people who are committed to medicine, to traditional medicine. There are young people who are committed to leadership. There are young people who are committed to the indigenous guard. There are young people who are committed to preserving the cultural theme. So there are young people who are artisans. Uh, there are young people who are fishermen. They are very good at it. There are young people who are hunters, and they are professionals. For us, those are professions. I still think that this generation of young people are involved in activism, whether it is political activism, in social activism, or cultural and identity activism. In other words, I feel that activism is not only political, it is also internal. But it is not just a young person who arrived here and said, well, I'm a young person and I choose to be this. Well, no. That is a process that comes from the mother. Women are fundamental to the processes and the survival of humanity. And I'm not only saying this for indigenous peoples. It is for the planet. And Mother Earth is sustained thanks to women. What message do you have for world leaders about indigenous communities and their issues? Okay. How difficult. I think the problems in Colombia are no different to the problems in Nicaragua, in Chile, in Peru, in Bolivia. 
in Peru, in Bolivia. I think their problems are the same. We just have a different territory and we are in different countries, you know. The extraction of minerals, the deforestation of the Amazon, oxygen, the damage done to the territory, the displacements, the dispossessions, all of this. Indigenous peoples in any part of the world have experienced it. So I think that one of the messages could be that we must once again connect with our grandfathers, grandmothers, from the spiritual spheres, but also connect with the indigenous peoples of the world. I still think that there are more of us who are good at protecting Mother Earth, even though we may be less visible. We take care of the planet, not only for me. We take care of the planet for those who are in the city, for those who can take public transportation, for those who have a car, for everyone else. It is not because you are indigenous you take care of the forest. This is because we are human beings and we are the ones who should take care of the planet. And also then look at the fact that we have to take care of all this for the generations to come and heal. I believe that the processes of healing is fundamental. The women's womb must be healed. Mother Earth must be healed. And this must be done urgently, because if there is no healing and territorial healing, it is difficult for us to survive on this planet. Thanks to Caroline Silao for that report. Coming up, we speak with a female entrepreneur from Samoa. This is Farms Food Future, the podcast that's good for you, good for farmers, and good for the planet. In 2022, EFAT started the Pacific Islands Rural and Agriculture Stimulus Facility, or PIRUS, project to minimize the effect of COVID-19. It was set up to develop sustainable, equitable, agricultural livelihood opportunities for rural communities throughout the Pacific Islands. On Samoa, IFAD got connected to one particularly outgoing and creative farmer, and with her advocacy and advice, we're supporting women across the island in becoming self-reliant through agribusiness. Shelley Burich is a community organiser, female empowerment professional, and expert e-commerce entrepreneur. She is also the only commercial vanilla farmer in all of Samoa. To start off, our reporter Ian Smith asked Shelley about the organisations of female farmers that she's helped bring to the national stage and international market. I have been so blessed to be involved with a number of different uh, non-profit organisations in Samoa. The the more recent one I just recently resigned as president for was the Samoa Women Association of Growers, otherwise known as SWAG. The work that we do with SWAG in terms of sharing our voices, providing a network of support for other women in business, not just agribusiness, but any business, um, and and sharing our knowledge and, and having that voice for advocacy so that We're not only supporting ourselves and sharing what we do, but we also provide a platform for women 
to have a voice at national level. And we bring these issues and these challenges to our government to say, hey, here's a bunch of women that have the potential to do great things for our country. Give us an opportunity. Open the doors. Fantastic. And and can you tell us even a little bit more, I mean, about how SWAG was started and why it's so important for female agriculturalists and entrepreneurs to have strong networks like SWAG? Mm, yeah. Um, it was when we were finding that a lot of our male farmers, growers, um, husbands, brothers were going off island to the where people go off island and they go to places like Australia and New Zealand to do fruit picking and earn good money to send back home. So the women were left behind looking after their families and they had to find a way of what can, what else can we do? So this is where swag has been so important, where we're, we're empowering these women to think, hey, you're growing something at home, turn it into a business. We show them, we teach them how to turn their products into value-add products that could be sold, not only locally, but potentially overseas as well. So swag is really a platform for women to learn and share experiences and their knowledge. So can you tell us about what PIRA stands for, this EFAD project, and how it came to be? Yeah, okay, thanks. So I was very fortunate that the team leader uh, for the PIRAS IFAD program, Dr. Ramona Sulufoa, uh, she was very instrumental in sitting down with us and having a really good conversation about what does swag need? What do our women need? And I think that's really important that these organizations are not coming to us saying, this is what we want you to do. Instead, they said, how can we help you? So we we had a lot of conversations. We, we met with our members. We asked them, what are your challenges? What is it that you need? And through that, we identified two, three, two or three main activities um, that we wanted to do. And one of them was we're helping them with uh, value-add, capacity building. Um, we also wanted to, we, we identified a couple of areas that we wanted women to have capacity building in, which was uh, beekeeping. We wanted to introduce them to um, honey production and, and the, the byproducts of the, the, the honey as well. And then the third part was teaching our women about e-commerce. I think it's very important that whether you're in agribusiness or not, that we expose, we give our women the opportunity to know what, how to do e-commerce and how it can help benefit them. So IFAD is not only working with organizations, but they're also looking at potential partnerships with individual agribusiness um, women entrepreneurs, which is fantastic. And not only helping to build their capacity, but how can we build the capacity outside of ourselves so that we're building the, for, in my instance, the vanilla industry as a whole for Samoa. 
That was Shelley Burick talking to us about her experience as a partner and implementer of the Pacific Island Rural and Agriculture Stimulus Facility. You can check out Shelley's website where she sells her vanilla products at www.violavanilla.com. Up next, we take a step back from gender equality and broach the important topic of food sovereignty and hear about what it takes in context for the Native American Lakota people. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. Before the late 1800s, tens of millions of American bison, the largest land animal in North America, thundered across the Great Plains. Less than a century later, they were made functionally extinct by European colonists who slaughtered them. In recent decades, buffalo restoration has been a huge success, but they still face many threats. A new disease, Mycoplasma bovis, poses the greatest danger to buffalo. Elsie Dubray is a Lakota activist and student at Stanford University. Her lifelong research, which started when she was just a curious toddler on her family's ranch in present-day South Dakota, has centered around the connection between buffalo and the health of the Lakota people. To my people, the buffalo are everything. It goes all the way back to our creation story, where the Lakota people come or emerge from Wind Cave, Wasunia, in the Black Hills or Pahasapa in South Dakota, or is now known as South Dakota, as buffalo. And and eventually we we become the Lakota people. And that's that's the moral of our creation story, is that we are one and the same. And that is kind of like a piece that is missing, I suppose, from history textbooks that talk about, quote-unquote, Plains Indians tribes and the relationship to buffalo being strictly material and being that we use every part of the buffalo, we eat them for food. Yes, very true, but people fail to realize the, the holistic nature of our relationship to the buffalo and the fact that the buffalo have taught us how to be ourselves in the sense of how we socially organize, how we approach relationships to each other, and how how we economically organized traditionally, how we see our relationship to a greater power and to our ancestors and to to those on the other side, and how we see our relationship to the land, how we see our relationship to food and water. And so Buffalo are at the very essence of who we are. And that's on every single level. We cannot exist as a cultural entity without the buffalo, um, plain and simple. And on that note, then, in the 21st century, in 2023, what threats do buffalo face? I think, unfortunately, one of the largest threats would be the cattle industry at large, and more so the mindset that the cattle industry and mainstream agriculture indoctrinates people with. And a majority of the quote-unquote bison industry today is ex-cattle ranchers who just have some sort of weird Wild West obsession with buffalo or realize that buffalo are bigger than cows and therefore they can feed them corn and make them even bigger and fatter and sell them for more. And so... I think that that mentality is the largest threat to Buffalo in and of themselves and also to a Buffalo restoration effort because 
USDA, the FDA are heavily invested in the cattle industry or supported by the cattle industry. And therefore, buffalo restoration sort of inherently goes against a lot of what they are founded on and what they support. And so that makes it really difficult for people advocating for buffalo restoration to get any sort of federal support on a meaningful level. Recently, actually, my family's herd has been at the forefront of research for an emerging disease called Mycoplasma bovis, which is a cattle disease that has made its way into Buffalo. But basically, people who treat Buffalo like cattle and ship them off to feedlots and cram them, cram them into corrals to be fed corn and all sorts of awful conditions um, have created the perfect breeding ground for this disease to spread all across the country. We lost, I think, about 30% of our herd. Buffalo are facing a threat like they haven't seen since the 1800s at a, during attempted eradication. And so I absolutely believe that the industrialization and commercialization of um, buffalo stewardship like trying to create a whole bunch of buffalo ranchers in the same way you create cattle ranchers is a huge threat to buffalo themselves and to buffalo restoration efforts that are that are to mean anything. So having talked about, having touched on the cultural significance of buffalo for the Lakota and the threats that buffalo face, one of the largest of them being the industrialization mindset, what does food sovereignty mean to you as a Lakota woman? Food sovereignty to me is a mechanism for a Lakota futurism in which our health and well-being and prosperity are at the center. And so when I think about food sovereignty, I think about nourishment, but on a more holistic level. And I think a lot of my work is trying to convey buffalo restoration as a legitimate public health mechanism and as something and food sovereignty as a legitimate public health mechanism that allows for a holistic approach to health and well-being that can actually be transformative and that can transcend some of these health disparities i i think that's a path forward in in public health in food sovereignty in decolonization and in the overall betterment of our communities. That report was from Ian Smith, and he was talking to Elsie Dubray, a 23-year-old activist and researcher from the Lakota tribe. Next, we have more from Ndaya Belchika on International Women's Day. This is Farms Food Future. Now for our final chat with EFAT's lead technical specialist for gender and social inclusion, Daya Belchika. Despite innovation's ability to transform lives, many barriers to equality remain. Access to technology and education that is inclusive is crucial in seeing injustice come to an end. Even if we've seen the difference that equal job opportunities, equal health care and education, equal decision-making power, and freedom from violence can make, progress to a gender-balanced world has at best been slow. There's still so much injustice and inequality in the world. What can we do? Ndaya told me what we are doing here at IFAD to overcome these barriers. So that's a very 
interesting questions, right? Because we said that, yes, we've been talking a lot about globally, about gender equality and the remaining gaps, and, and yet things do not seem to change. So it seems that there is some stickiness there. So Arifat, what we do and what we promote are, you know, can be categorized in different buckets. The first one is the focus on social norms, right? So it's to identify, measure, and change the social norms that perpetuate the cycle of gender inequality. That, of course, has to be adapted to the local context and has to be done at different levels. It has to be done at the individual level, household, community, and structural level. In terms of some of the social norms that we need to focus on, we could look at those that curtail the right of women to education, those that limit access and ownership to resources, reduce immobility, as well as those that promote the unequal distribution of domestic shores. The second one is to assess and capitalize on the political will that exists in different countries to actually change or promote gender equality. Then to also look at the organizational structures that are there to do so, whether they are gender units, whether they are ministries that are there to promote and be accountable to push the agenda of gender equality. The third one is to look at whether they do have the technical competency and capabilities to do so. And of course, to have the mechanism, the accountability mechanism to track whether the commitment translates into actions and to what extent the actions are monitored um, for measuring progress. At the minimum, uh, we promote the use and the adoption of gender equality policies, strategies, and action plans. And then also within that, we put a high focus on promoting the economic empowerment, ensure that when we talk about the economic empowerment of women, we ensure that it's not about women without women. So women have to be represented and they have to lead their own development. Equally important is the engagement of women, of men, and opinion leaders that are there to promote and enforce some of the social norms that I just mentioned earlier. And then when we talk about the accountability mechanisms to ensure that we generate, collect, analyze, and report on sex desegregated data and gender specific indicators to track the progress. So as we move through International Women's Day 2023, are you more optimistic than last year? Are we better <laughs> off than we were 12 months ago? I mean, how has the last year been since we, we spoke about International Women's Day 2022? Uh, is, has it been good progress, mediocre, or not as good as you hoped for? This is a loaded question. And, and um, particularly given the initial statements that we are off track, right? So off track related to gender equality and closing the gender gap. So let me say that I am cautiously optimistic. And let me tell you why. Um, we continue to talk about the need of 
addressing and reaching gender equality. And I think there is an increased recognition that is not a luxury, that is, it is a must, right? And of course, I would tend to prefer that we recognize that gender equality is necessary because it's a fundamental human rights. But unfortunately, not everybody would necessarily be persuaded based on that argument. So now there is increased recognition that there is also um, an economic or a business case for gender equality and women's empowerment. So on that aspect alone, more people are more institutions are increasingly looking at gender equality as a way to actually generate economic and social benefits. So with that, I remain cautiously optimistic that in the years to come, in the month to come, in the years to come, gender equality would no longer be a debatable question or would be an option. It would be a necessity recognized by everyone as required to actually have a better world. Thanks to Ndaya Belchika, you can find out more about our work for gender equality in rural communities at www.ifand.org forward slash gender. And I hope you had or are having a very happy International Women's Day. Next, getting self-sufficient in Somerset. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. It's now time to catch up with Brian's ex-colleague, the BBC's former parliamentary correspondent, Max Cotton. As we told you back in November, he has since moved on to pastures new to live in the rural southwest of England, near Glastonbury, where he has a nearly two-hectare small holding. And back in September, he kicked off his latest project to live on only what he grows, except for tap water and salt. I went back to check in with Max as he was entering his fourth month of self-sufficiency, and I asked him if it was flying by. You know, it is flying by, actually. Uh, you know, at the end of December, I will be entering my fifth month um, uh, of a year of, uh, of food self-sufficiency. So it is, I hadn't thought about that since you asked me, it is going what, what feels like quite quickly, yeah. Um, it's... Um, it's a little bit of a ticking time bomb in that at the moment I've still got plenty of food and I am going to start running out at some stage before the new, the new growing season starts. Um, you know, here in Britain, we have a big chunk of about four or five months where you're not harvesting anything at all because the days are too short. There's too little daylight. It's called the hungry gap. And um, that's got to be got through. And the worst bit of that is actually towards the end of March into early April. Um, so I am on, sitting on a little bit of a ticking time bomb. At the moment, I've still got plenty to eat. And, um, yeah, it's flying by. Is there anything you've had to rethink since you, you started out? Yeah, my whole idea about choice and variety. So... You, you both know, you, we both know what it's like. You come home, uh, there's your family, and the two of you sit down and say, right, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? Uh, and someone says, oh, well, why don't we have this? And you think, oh, no, but we had that 
yesterday or we had that two days ago. Let's have something different. All of that goes out of the window because basically I eat the same things every day. I uh, I have uh, I have some sort of vegetables, uh, I have potatoes probably, and I have meat every single day. And the amount of variety um, is uh, is completely out the window. I've had no pasta for four months, had no rice for four months, um, nothing like that. And um, and so you're very very limited. The sort of type of dinners you had, no fish. I haven't had any fish for four months. And so you're basically eating the same sort of things every day. And you start to find flavors within that. You start to find differences within that. I'm making these lactic acid cheeses at the moment, very, very simple cheeses. You can start eating them straight away as soon as they're made. And then over a period of two or three weeks, their flavors change and, and they become they become different and it's a taste sensation all of its own. And it's finding joy in food. It's finding value in variety in that way rather than rather than something else. I mean, I, I, I do go into the supermarket to buy um, a loo roll or, or shampoo or whatever. And each time I go in, I feel slightly more sick at the impossible variety of food that there is in a in a in a in a western european supermarket any food from anywhere in the world you can buy it at any time of the year and i'm finding it a tiny bit obscene if i can say that the diet might be a little monotonous but you're finding variations and and textures of flavor within that but nutritionally it's it's stable would you say with what you're living absolutely. on absolutely yeah, absolutely. No, I've got a classic, a, a classic balanced diet. You know, I've got my fats and oils. I've got my carbohydrates and my starches. I've got my proteins. I've got my minerals. I mean, I, I the only thing I, I am um, suffering uh, with a little bit is I've got very, very little vitamin C. So um, I do have preserved tomatoes, which I'm mainly eating in baked beans and the occasional sort of sauce or something like that but i don't have any other vitamin c um other than the vitamin c that's in fresh vegetables and they're becoming fewer and fewer and far and further in between um than than they were so i am going to start to take a vitamin c tablet um uh, as a sort of precaution um for vitamin c um, because I've got no lemons, I've got no citrus fruits, nothing like that. So as the winter progresses, I am going to start to take vitamin C supplements because uh, I don't want all my teeth to fall out. But apart from that, I've got yeah, I've got a really a really good balanced balanced diet. That's good to hear. But tell me, how about the the wider family? I mean, you're sitting there. I'm, I mean, and I'm not sure if people understand, but you're sitting there surrounded by your family who are eating. In not under the same restrictions. How how are they dealing with it? How are you dealing with that? I get my revenge, Brian. It's good. I mean, I can um, if they do it to me, I can do it to them. So we had a thing the other day where um, my wife Maxine made some brownies for 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 Harry and Ruby, and they were these delicious looking brownies on a piece of greaseproof paper on the table. They were absolutely they were still hot. Do you know what I mean? You think, wow, that is so delicious. 
and she she gave them these brownies with a big lump of cream on them. And I just sort of registered it. I just sort of clocked, okay, they're doing that to me. And so a couple, uh, a couple of days later, I will have a fillet steak of my own for a sort of little supper dish um, from my own from my own beef while they're chomping their way through a can of baked beans or something. So um, it cuts both ways in terms of temptation and revenge. That sounds like that's the best way to deal with it. But so tell me <laughs> now, we're, um, as well, um, spring will be the next season to approach. Where yes. will your focus be changing to as as we as we move out of winter into spring? Yeah. So the first, there are some things that I'm already really looking forward to. They're a long way away still. Um, you know, I'm just about to start getting into the sort of winter restrictions and the lack of, of the lack of winter variety. But things I'm really looking forward to are purple sprouting broccoli, which is going to be at the end of March, probably beginning of April. I'm really, really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to asparagus uh, in April, which is going to be my first really exciting sort of green veg thing. But I've got to get through all the way through January, February and and a bit of March yet before anything goes on. Uh, it's very, very cold, unseasonably cold in in Britain at the moment. And um, some of the vegetables I've still got in my vegetable garden are suffering a little bit. Um, I haven't started yet on my winter squashes that are all uh, tucked up in uh, safely in a shed. So I'll be doing, I'll be starting to get into my winter squashes after Christmas sometime. Also, the other thing in the spring that I'm looking forward to is I'm looking forward to my hens starting to lay eggs again because um, our, our hens don't lay uh, in the winter. Um, the, there's not enough daylight, and um, and so they're, they're, uh, they they stop laying. And so come about sort of early February, mid-February, my hens will start, when there's a bit more daylight, my hens will start laying again. And so I'm quite looking forward to have having plenty of eggs, whereas at the moment I only have one or two a week. That was Max Cotton. We'll be catching up with Max as the spring begins later in the year. But if you want to check out how he's doing, you can follow his YouTube channel, Maxwell's, with an apostrophe S, Rant. Up next, Kasa Alom brings us another story from Bangladesh, and this time it's about driving licences and steering away from stereotypes. Did you see what I did there? Who writes this stuff? Ryan, it's golden. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in the studio with Michelle Tang. Women are major contributors to rural economies, yet face numerous challenges that men do not. And it begins at an early age, with girls less likely than boys to receive education and support. Despite being productive members of their families, organizations, communities, rural women don't always have their voices heard. Now, too often, they're unable to contribute to decisions about household and community issues and money and business, including how their own income is spent. In northern Bangladesh, thanks to driving lessons provided by an EFAD project, a group of young rural women now have careers as drivers, a typically male-dominated profession, and it's steering people's minds about women. So everywhere 
I'm going in this country, and I love this country, uh, all the drivers seem to be men. Every single one of the drivers I have had has been male. We're gonna get in now. This is our driver. How you doing? Good. Which, yeah, you can expect it. Even in the UK, the most of the taxi drivers are male, but I don't think I've even seen a female driver of any sort in Bangladesh yet. For me, that's hard to understand. My mum is British Bangladeshi. She grew up in the UK and was the first in our family to pass a driving test, something that everyone was really proud of. She also took me to school pretty much every day, so it's always been normal for me to see women drive. It's hard to figure out exactly how many women in Bangladesh can drive, but some figures estimate less than 10% of women hold a driving license. One organisation is trying to actually change that, and that's who I'm with right now, uh, IFAD. We are currently going somewhere where we are going to meet the next generation of women drivers. Including Babli Akhtar, who is just pulling up right now and turning a few heads in the process. All right, here we go. Let's get out. So we're here now in Shulam Ganj. This is what this is the first project that we are looking at right now. Babli spent the last month on an intensive driving course. She's one of a handful of women who've been trained by the local government and IFAD on everything from learning how to drive to how to fix a car. What have we got here? <laughs> Battery? Yes. She's explaining it to me in English. That's really impressive. You can explain in Bangla. Washer fluid, window. Uh, power steering. Uh, engine oil. If I ever break down on the road in Bangladesh, I definitely know who to call. Babli is from a poor small village though, and she is divorced. That's something that matters here in Bangladesh. It's something that can cause a taboo. So before this project, Babli didn't really have many plans for her life or any prospects for the future. My name is Babli Akhtar. I am from a village in Sunamganj. My family? Uh, yes. Uh, four women and one male, my dad. What did you do before driving? I used to do a bit of sewing. Mainly, I used to make girls' dresses. My parents wanted me to study when I was little and get a good job. I've got no brothers and there's six sisters, so I helped my dad to support this family. There was no specific career or prospects. My family just wanted me to have a good job. Whatever I wanted, since being a child, my mom and dad has always supported me. She didn't earn that much though, just about enough to help her dad feed the family, of which Babli is the eldest. Now she can drive though, things can get better. More revenue streams will open up for her to help out. And that's something that's really important, particularly as farming is getting harder in this region because of climate change. Tell me a little bit now about how this has helped you and your family. Are you able to earn money now, do you think, to support your family? No, I haven't been able to earn any money yet because I haven't got my own car. 
and I haven't got a job in the public or private sector, and my dad hasn't got the money to buy me a car. Do you think anybody will employ a female driver? I believe so. She believes it. Good, I believe it too. I hope so, because I don't see why not. Why is it important for women to feel that they can see a woman driver? Is it Do they feel more safe when a woman is driving? They get into that car, for example? Yes, the, the way I learned to drive, there are plenty of other women out there in my situation. And I want them to learn like this and stand on their own feet. But the extra money does have another cost. I just want you guys to see this. The women are being filmed, right? But look at all the men staring. I think men stare a lot in Bangladesh. Not many women are driving in this country. Do people stare? Yes, people do stare. If people see women driving, then they are amazed that a woman is driving. Yeah. Has anyone ever said anything or done something to you? In my village, my uncle owns a car. Outside my house crossing the bridge, while I was driving, I had a slight problem. There were some people who were standing and laughing. I felt like I wanted to prove them wrong in my mind, that I can drive, and that eventually they will be proud of me. Mm. I found my chat with Babli really inspiring. She doesn't care what people think. She just wants to help her family. And it's something her dad has always supported. Okay, wow. Uh, for women in Bangladesh, driving has never really been a, something that they can do. Why is it that you allowed Babli to have that dream? Everybody has a right to learn to drive especially women. And I want other girls to see my daughter and learn from her as well. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's really good. And Afnalagi, so when Babli has been driving as a woman, were you ever worried she was going to get looks or people were going to say things to her? Obviously, people will stare because women driving in Bangladesh is not normal. But there is no job that women can't do in Bangladesh. If women can develop and can learn to drive, I believe that five other women can see my daughter and learn to drive as well. And that's slowly by slowly how development will happen. If I don't support my daughter, then other women won't be able to do it or have the opportunities as well. Yeah, yeah, I understand. It clearly means so much to her to be able to drive. I could see in her face that, you know, she's someone who has wanted to drive all her life since she was a child, but there's this social stigma around women driving, all to do with liberty, equality, that's all wrapped up in this whole Bangladeshi culture as well. But the fact that she's able to drive now, you can tell it means a lot to her, but also what it means to her wider society. And I think this is gonna make a real change to this community. Maybe not today, but definitely in five years, in 10 years, because it's gonna become normal for women to drive. And men, yes, they're gonna stare, but they're gonna get used to it because this is progress. You can't stop progress. It's, it's just brilliant what's being done here. This is the sort of stuff that people are talking about, you know, that doesn't happen in Bangladesh, but this is what they want to do. And they are being filmed doing it and pushed to do it. 
and what they're saying about being the inspiration for the next generation. How positive is that? What does that mean for this country and the next generation of girls and what they should be able to do if those who are older than them are paving the way? So does Babli see this as a turning point for women in Bangladesh? In the UK, where I'm from, um, women drive wherever all the time. No one bats an eyelid anymore. It's not a, it's not a problem. Do you ever think Bangladesh will be like that? Yes, I think so. Bangladesh will be like abroad. I dream it. That was Kasa Alam reporting from Bangladesh. If you want to know more about his reports on IFAD projects and his work in general, you can check his YouTube channel, Kasa Vision. That's Q-A-S-A Vision. And that brings us to the end of episode 41. Many thanks to our fantabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also to the rest of the team, our reporters Ian Smith and Caroline Silau. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Next month's episode 42 will be all about innovation. You can find out everything about worm pool and how that can clean your water. Who would have thunk that? Oh, that's incredible. I'm looking forward to that one, Michelle. Me too, absolutely. <laughs> Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at efat.org. And send us your voice or text messages to that address, and we'll be more than happy to play you out in the next show. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform, and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of March with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAT. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.